So uh, as you just heard, we're in the book of Genesis, um, Genesis 12, starting in verse 10. And we've been in the book of Genesis going all the way back to September. Uh, we went through all the way to December and then picked it back up again last week. And we're going to be in it for a few more months because, surprise, it's a very long book. Um, but we hit a major shift last week. If you remember Land in his sermon, he talked about that um, the next few chapters, they really zoom in on one man and one family, and that's Abraham. Um, and uh, one kind of small story that popped into my head as I was thinking about this passage this week um, that just kind of reminded me of this. Um, so if you didn't know, <clears throat> sorry, I used to be the kids director here. When I first came on staff, I was the kids director for a few years, years and years and years ago. Um, and I remember one summer we were meeting at Lincoln School. You remember that summer we met at Lincoln School? I remember the AC in the auditorium because it had AC, and <laughs> that was fantastic. Uh, but the, the kids' lesson that day, that particular day, was on David and Bathsheba. Um, and if you aren't familiar with church or the story of David, uh, David is just this great king, this great figure of faith, not too far off from Abraham. Um, but this particular passage was about just some terrible things that he did, some really terrible, horrific sins that he committed. Um, and I remember there was one student, a, a young boy, like uh, early elementary, um, that we went through the lesson and we told him these things that King David did, and he just like didn't believe them. Not like, oh, I don't believe the Bible is true, but like, I don't actually believe that those things are in the Bible, right? He uh, just couldn't overcome the fact that, that David, King David, who killed Goliath, King David, who was a man after God's own heart, King David, who was just a man of faith and did really great things for Israel and the kingdom of God, could do these things. And he literally said something along the lines of, my David would never do that. My David would never do that. Now, David, again, if you've been around church for some time, his sins are a little bit more obvious to us, right? Like, of course, we remember the good things that he's done, but we, we also obviously remember the terrible sins that he did. But when we consider the great figures of faith in the Old Testament, and we consider their great failures, we often don't consider Abraham. I think we think about some of the faithful moments that he's had, but we don't really think about like, oh yeah, just like David sinned greatly, so did Abraham. Like, we might conceptually believe that, of course, but we don't think back to some specific moments. And it's, it's not surprising, but Abram is considered a great man of faith. Right? We heard last week that three world religions are kind of centered on Abraham or find their roots or their beginnings in Abraham. Out of every single character in the Old Testament, Abraham is mentioned the second most in the New Testament, second only to Moses. Right? He's mentioned in uh, Hebrews 11, which is called the Hall of Faith, that just contains this list of heroic figures of faith in the Old Testament. He's a figure who is held up incredibly high, right? He was a man of God. He was a man of faith. Yet in our passage today, he lies. Our passage today, he chooses not to trust God. Our passage today, he willingly allows his wife to get taken for his own self-gain and for his own self-preservation. Maybe most disgustingly, he actually gets rewarded for these things. And the passage isn't explicit, but it almost seems like there was no remorse when he got the reward for those things. Maybe what's even more stunning than that is all of this happens after what is quite possibly Abraham's best moment with God, or one of the best moments. Right, the passage before ours, Blaine covered last week, God chose Abraham and God called Abraham. And he made Abraham a really big promise, right? He says this to Abraham. He says um, that I will make of you, Abram, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And after this, Abraham and his wife Sarah and their nephew Lot, they, they leave the place that they, they live because of this call from God. And so our passage is right after this. Right after this kind of peak mountaintop experience with God, we all of a sudden find Abraham in this valley of, of sin and despair. And right off the bat, I think maybe a lot of us in the room can kind of understand that. At least in my life, sometimes there's this peak moment with God, but then all of a sudden, a few days later, like, whoa, how did we get from there to here? Or if you grew up going to kind of Christian youth conferences, um, I don't know the exact phrase, but the conference high of sorts, right? You go and there's this like peak high that, yes, the the worship is amazing. The the preaching, the speaking is amazing. You go home and you're on fire for God and you're going to do these great things. Then two days later, you find yourself in the same or worse kind of rust that you're in maybe right before you left. I think Abraham finds himself in a somewhat similar situation. And so there's a lot going on in our story, right? Many different routes we could take, many different things we could examine. But if we look closely, you look closely at this passage, behind this kind of thinning veil of of, of sin and failure is actually God doing really deep and good work. If you look closely, you see that Abraham's mentioned more, but he's actually not the main character, and he's actually not the main point. And his sins and his failures and his lies, while they should be considered, they're actually not the main thing. Right? It's really God and God's faithfulness to keep his promise that is at the center of this story. And how God is at work keeping his promise to Abraham, despite Abraham's sins and failures. And so that's our focus for today. That's our kind of main point, our big takeaway. My main point is God keeps his promises to you despite your sins and failures. God keeps his promises to you despite your sins and failures. And we'll survey this um, in two parts, kind of two themes that we see in the story, failures and faithfulness. We'll look at Abram's failures in verses 10 through 16 and God's faithfulness in 17 through 20. And then we'll wrap up by just kind of saying, well, now what? Also, side note, I, I switched back and forth between Abraham and Abram. They're the same person, in case you didn't know. Abram later had his name changed to Abraham, which we'll learn about in a few weeks. You also notice, too, that Sarah, her name is actually right now in the passage, Sarai. She also has her name changed later in a few weeks. But in many ways, this is just kind of a continuation of two major themes in Genesis. Right? We emphasized this a few months ago, and we emphasize it every now and then. Um, but that Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 uh, marks really humanity's biggest turning point until the coming of Christ. Right? The sin um, that they did put humanity and its evil and its sin on one path and God's goodness kind of on another path. And the whole story of Genesis kind of narrates this. Right? Survey the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you've been here for the whole series, um, you see people do terrible things. You see, you see things deteriorate really quickly. Or you see murder, you see polygamy, you see lying right, from one kind of main character to the next. And one question under each of these stories with each character is kind of, is this character, is this person, who we do believe are real people that lived in a real time and a real place, is this the person? Right? Will this be the righteous person that makes right the two paths that are going in seemingly opposite directions? There's this building tension for this. Who is this person? Who will it be? And so far, Genesis 1 through 11, again, if you didn't know, that's about 2,000 years. So far, time and time again, character after character, person after person, the answer is no, 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 no. And so Abraham is no exception to this narrative, right? He kind of enters the scene, and he actually might be the most promising prospect. When you consider the promises that were made to him in our previous passage, 
he might be the most promising prospect to be the person to write these two paths. But then we hit the very next section, our section today. Verses 10 through 16, Abraham puts on kind of what's a master class of what it means to fail and not trust God. His overarching sin in his story is, is, is not believing that God would keep his promise. And we see this manifest itself in many different ways, right? Maybe the most obvious one, the one that kind of jumps off the page immediately is the lie that he concocts at the beginning. Right? He tells Sarah to lie in verse 11. He says that, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, if you fast forward eight chapters, you actually learn that um, Sarah is, in fact, Abraham's sister, but she's his half-sister. And so maybe, to give him benefit of the doubt, you could say maybe this is a half-truth or a half-lie, right? Um, But when you read the text carefully, Abraham's goal in saying this is not um, to tell the truth, it's to deceive. It's to lie. And at first glance, it might be kind of easy to sympathize with Abraham, right? Put yourself in a similar situation. Death is seemingly imminent. But all you have to do to escape it is say four little words, a four little word lie. Just say, I am his sister, and everyone's okay. Everyone's spared. That seems somewhat understandable, right? Like, I don't quite know what I would necessarily do in that situation. As I was reading about this, people drew a lot of parallels to, like, Nazi Germany. Someone knocks on your door. Are you hiding Jews? A simple little lie would fix that. And now that's a more complicated situation. I'm not going to dive deep into that, but the parallels are there. But when you consider the consequences in this story of what this little lie, seemingly little lie, is, you'll see it's not so little. Because when you get down to it, Abraham, what he's doing when he's lying like this is he's taking the promises of God into his own hands. He was promised that he would become a great nation, but how can that happen if he dies? He was promised that the nations would be blessed by him and through him. But how does that happen if he doesn't make it through Egypt? <clears throat> he was promised that his offspring would do this. But how does that happen if he's killed? He tried to protect the promise of God. <clears throat> Sorry. He tried to pre- protect the promise of God with his own strength and his own might. And he tried to work it out himself. And so when we put the lie in that light. It actually hits a little closer to home, right? For many of us. If it's just simply that he's taking the promises of God into his own hands and trying to work it out. Right? God promises to strengthen us, yet we so often lean on our own strength, our own skills, our own abilities. God promises us that he will give us the words to say when we're trying to talk about him and share about him. Yet we shrink back in fear and nervousness and make excuses about why this isn't the proper time or the place. God promises that he knows what we need and to not be anxious. Yet how many of us every day are filled with anxiety of some way, shape, or form? And so all of a sudden, we have a lot more in common with Abraham than we might have expected. We, too, struggle to believe that God will keep his promises. And we see the consequences for this, for this little sin that Abraham committed and the consequences for this are massive for him, for Sarah, and the Egyptians, everyone involved. Abraham loses his wife. 
right? He goes into Egypt and the very thing that he was kind of afraid of happened. They take Sarah away from him and bring her to Pharaoh's house. In other words, Sarah is on, the way to be, Sarah is on her way to becoming a concubine or a sex slave for Pharaoh. And what this story, this short story in Egypt thousands and thousands of years ago is showing us is that sin, no matter how small you think it is, has massive consequences that extend far beyond just you. But we're wrong to think that our sin, even the sins that only God and yourself see, only affect us. Right? Because think about who knew about this sin of this little lie. It was Abraham, Sarah, and God, three people. Yet consider the consequences. Abraham lost his life or wife. The Egyptians, they had plagues brought upon them. And so immediately, all of a sudden, it's no longer just these three people, Abraham, Sarah, and God. It's who knows how many. One commentator considering this kind of poetically pointed out that um, God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. But in this story, because he didn't obey God, he was a curse to the nations. And so we're wrong to assume that there aren't great consequences to our sin, even the quote-unquote small stuff. Even the quote-unquote, you know, third-level, fourth-level, third-tier, fourth-tier sins. I was extremely convicted of this kind of idea really recently in my own life. Um, as I considered this passage. It was, it was only a few weeks ago I was, I was driving home. Um, it was late in the day. It wasn't nighttime yet, but kind of dusk, like 4 o'clock or so. And it was raining and it was cold. And there was this guy on the side of the road. He was trying to cross the street. And um, I was in a bad mood, and I was like, dude, like, there is no one behind me, and you're, like, 20 feet from a crosswalk. Just go to the crosswalk. Like, I'm not going to let you cross. Sorry. So basically, I was being a jerk. But the stoplight in front of me turned red, and all the cars in front of me stopped, and then I come to a stop right in front of him. And um, I'm still being a jerk at this point. Uh, I pull up enough that it's clear, like, hey, I'm not going to let you cross. And this guy, he kind of like looks at me through the passenger window and like waves like, hey man, didn't, like it's raining and it's cold. Like, bro, what do you, come on. And so he, he goes around behind my car. At this point, I'm like angry. <laughs> and he looks at me through the, the, the driver's window and we lock eyes. And this guy happens to be an employee at one of the local stores right across the street from our house. Person who I was getting to know person who I was hoping to develop a relationship with and maybe even share my faith at some point. I knew his name. I knew where he grew up. I know where he vacations. I know his kids' names and how many kids he has. He doesn't know what I believe or or what I do for work yet, but now when I tell him, what is he going to think? One seemingly small moment where I lacked care and compassion, where I lacked the ability or the desire to show the love of Christ. It seems small, right? Take out the personal note, like, okay, you cut this guy off and he has to walk behind the car. Like, that seems small. But if I'm honest, I don't think God would have us do that in that situation. Like, if God promises to work all things for our good, I think you can stop and let someone cross the street. Right, one seemingly small moment where I lack care and compassion in the love of Christ. And it completely tarnish my witness with this guy. These small things can come with big consequences. Just like the lie Abraham and Sarah told, this small thing turns into a big consequence. This small sin turns into something bigger. 
Another small sin in the story beyond the lying. I find it interesting that in the previous section, Abraham worships God twice, right? The, The text goes out of the way to note that. It says that he builds an altar to God and worships him twice. Yet he doesn't do this at any point in our story. Right? It almost seemed like he went forward with his plan and didn't think twice about consulting with God. And that's something we can certainly all sympathize with, right? We tend to move forward with our plan or our conceptions or our opinions about matters and then slap a sticker on it that says, this is God's will for my life, without even talking to God about it, without even praying, without even thinking, what would you have me do? Without even asking the people around us, hey, is this... Is this wise? Is this a good decision? Do you think this might be in the Lord's will for me to do this or that? And just imagine if Abraham stopped, he stopped what he was doing, he worshiped God, and he prayed, and he genuinely asked God, what would you have me do in this situation? Do you think he would have navigated the situation the same way? Do you think his plan to lie would have been the best thing that he could have come up with, would have been the best thing that God would have had him do? And would it have been the way that God wanted them to go about it? I would argue no. So we have a lot to learn from this passage, right? About how Abram acts, about simply what to do and not do, how to kind of make decisions, right? And how small sins can spiral. But again, remember what I said at the beginning, the main focus of this passage is the invincibility of God's promises, is the fact that God is faithful to keep his promises. Which leads us to our second part. The second thing we see in the story, verses 17 through 20, God's faithfulness in keeping his promise. God's faithfulness in keeping his promise. Remember the previous passage, God told Abraham that he would dishonor those who, or curse those who dishonor him. Right? And so um, Pharaoh brought Sarah into his house and then God brought forth the plagues. And so immediately God kept his promise to Abraham to dishonor, to curse those who dishonor him. Some commentators actually think that the, the plagues here, one of them actually could have maybe been some sort of sexually transmitted infection. And that was his way of kind of preserving or protecting Sarah in this scenario from having to engage in those things. Seems like a stretch, but it's a pretty interesting thought. And ultimately when Sarah was taken, it was God who rescued her, not Abraham. The promise to make a great nation out of them stayed alive because of what what God did, not because of what any human did, certainly not because of what Abraham did. Not just that, but this promise that God made to Eve that that, um, her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. If you remember back in Genesis 3, this is a promise that eventually finds its way to Jesus. That was kept alive by God doing this too. And at the end of it all, when we read Pharaoh's speech, we kind of surprisingly see that it's really, really heavily implied, very heavily implied, that if Abraham was just truthful about everything, if Abraham just said, this is my wife, that Pharaoh probably would have let him go. We can't say for sure, but that's really what it reads like. That he wouldn't have killed Abraham and would have sent him on his way. And it's kind of funny There are a lot of stories in the Bible like this where actually the kind of apparent antagonist is a more godly person with more integrity than the protagonist. And so Pharaoh in this situation, he's almost presented as a man of integrity. Though he's not. And then Abraham, the apparent man of God, 
is, is being a coward. Other stories like that too, Jonah, the supposed man of God, the prophet, he's the only person not listening to God in the book. If you remember, the book goes out to point out that God appointed a worm, probably the funniest verse in all of scripture to me. Even the worm was faithful and obedient. <laughs> but the man of God wasn't. It's almost as if God is trying to get Abraham's attention, right? Like, hey, did you forget that I'm God? Like, did you forget that I'm the one that makes the promise and I'm the one who's going to keep it? Why would you do this? Why would you do this? And if you look at the way Pharaoh responds, it's quite interesting. What's the leading question he kind of leads with? What is this you have done? Does that sound familiar? Genesis 3, when God approaches Adam and Eve, what is this you have done? Abraham disobeyed God. But God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And again, because God keeps his promises despite our sins and failures, this ought to lead us to do a few things in our lives. Three things, and then we'll kind of close. It ought to comfort us. It ought to show us how to act and obey in certain situations. And it ultimately shows us the beauty of Christ in it all. Comfort how to act and obey in the beauty of Christ in it all. And so here's the truth I hope you're kind of beginning to see, right? If the promises of God were left to you to keep, you wouldn't be able to do it. If the promises of God were left to me, I wouldn't be able to do it. Abraham shows us this, a perfect example. He thinks the promises of God are left to him. And so he tries to act on it and he can't do it. And there's comfort in this though. There's comfort in this because it's not up to us, right? It's up to a faithful God. Everything in our lives doesn't ride on us. It's something small that this story teaches us. It doesn't ride on the sins or the failures or uh, the experiences or what we do or don't do. It rides on a faithful God. And so when you're struggling with whatever you're going through, whatever sin, whatever temptation, whatever harm that's been done to you, whatever harm you've done, rather than trying to clawing your way out, Sometimes the most helpful thing to do is remember that God keeps his promises. Like think about how that's a much more powerful way to kind of reframe that, right? Like let's say you're anxious and you're experiencing some anxiety and you Google Bible verses about anxiety and you read for the 200th time from Paul, don't be anxious. Thanks. (laughs) What if instead you flip to Deuteronomy 7 and you read it was not because you were greater than any other people that the Lord set his love on you but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's a little more powerful. God saying to you, I love you because I love you. I love you because I made a promise to your fathers, your spiritual fathers in the faith. Obviously at this point in time, Abraham didn't have Deuteronomy to open up and see. Right, but instead of acting on fear in this situation, what if he asked God and thought back to the promises that were made to him, that God made to him? You know what that kind of ought to feel like? I'm sure everyone in the room can understand this, like whether it's at work or at home or school, like you have that one thing, you're just caught up in one thing that you can't do. It's stressing you out. It's causing you anxiety. And it's just really difficult. 
And then that one trusted friend, that one trusted coworker, the spouse whom you love so much just comes in and with compassion looks at you in the eye and says, don't worry, I got this. I will do this for you. And so whatever you're going through, don't worry. God's got this. And he might bring you through it in a way that you don't necessarily want to go or in a way that you don't expect. But don't worry, God's got this. We ought to find comfort in this. The fact that God keeps his promises. The second thing to consider in light of God keeping his promises is how to act. How to act. Abraham acted as if God wasn't going to keep his promise. Right? He failed to trust God and acted in the complete opposite way that I think God would have had him. It was God's job to make, keep, and fulfill the promise. It was Abraham's job simply to obey God. Now, somewhat easier said than done. Right? I'm sure we can all agree with that. But when it really boils down to it, Abraham should have just asked the question, God, what would you have me do here? How can I make this decision in a godly way? How can I navigate this situation in a way that pleases you? Here's the tricky part, though, for us, and maybe even Abraham, too, is so often God doesn't tell us what to do, but he tells us how to do it. In other words, I don't necessarily think God would have told Abraham how to avoid this situation and how to avoid the situation in Egypt. But I think he would have said, I know you want to know how, what to do, but let me tell you how to do this, which is by trusting and obeying me. So that posture right there would have taken Abraham's solution out of play right away. If he would have just figured out God wants him to simply trust and obey, he wouldn't have lied. If he just figured out God wanted him to trust and obey, he wouldn't have been overly passive when his wife was being taken from him. If he figured out that God wanted him to trust and obey, he would have gone after her in some way. If he would have figured out that God wanted him to trust and obey, he wouldn't have accepted all these riches on behalf of his wife, who just went in to be a sex slave to Pharaoh. That's the posture God wants from us so often, is not so much, God, what do you want me to do? But God, how do you want me to act? How do you want me to trust? And how do you want me to obey? This is a more helpful question. The last thing to consider in light of the fact that God keeps his promises is the beauty of Christ in it all. If you're here last week, Bland touched on this a little bit, but it's worth bringing up again. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. And so when we consider the promises of God throughout scripture, we consider the promises of God just in the Old Testament, all of them make sense and find their fulfillment in Jesus. Right? God's promise to Abram to make him into a great nation is in and through Christ. God's promise to Abram to bless the other nations through him is in and through and fulfilled in Christ. And the same applies to all of us in this room, right? God's promises to us are yes and amen in Christ. <clears throat> and just in case you aren't sure, God promises you a lot of things in the Bible. A lot of things, like there are passages where promises are made to specific people at specific times, and we have to work really hard to figure out, okay, well, how does this apply to us? But there's also a lot that are just straight up to us as a people, as believers. Some of these things, God promises just to answer your prayers. God promises to work everything out for your good. He promises to take care of your needs. He promises to give you rest, to strengthen you, and to give you eternal life through Christ. 
In Christ, all of these things are fulfilled. Not in you, not in me, in Christ. And as we close, I don't want us to miss this. The ways in which Abraham failed, Jesus succeeded. You see, Jesus is the better and perfect Abraham. And in our story, when Abraham considered the promises of God, he sinned and failed greatly. In Jesus' story, when he considered the promises of God, he obeyed God perfectly. If Abraham in our passage, again, is a master class on, on what it means to fail and not trust God, then Jesus in the garden is a master class of what it means to succeed and trust God. These two contrasting stories are, are really just striking. Right? Abraham faced great peril in Egypt, and he doesn't consult God, and he takes things into his own hands. And he receives a great reward at the expense of others and causes others a lot of pain in the process. Jesus facing great peril of a higher degree. The night before his crucifixion in the garden, sweating blood, he consults God. He genuinely asks God, but he ends his request with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he receives great pain on our behalf. So in our situations, in our circumstances, amidst our sins and our failures, remember that God is faithful to keep his promises to you in Christ Jesus. Find comfort in that. Let that be the driving factor in how you decide to act and what you decide to do. And remember that all these things find their yes in the better and perfect Abraham, in the better and perfect Christ Jesus. So we're going to transition to communion. Again, this idea that Jesus is the better and perfect Abraham, he does so because he completely trusts God. He completely obeys God to his death. And so in communion, that's what we remember, right? We remember this perfect life of Jesus that led him to the cross. And remember how Jesus, his body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf. So we're going to take communion anytime throughout this next song. Um, You can head out through these doors on the side, um, take the elements out there and then come back to your seat. We can't have food or drink um, in this auditorium. Um, And if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, I would encourage you, this is the one part of the service we ask you not to partake in, but to instead consider what it means that um, Jesus Christ has done these things for you. Um, And then we would love it if you accepted Christ. We'd love to talk to you about that. And then next week you can join communion with us. So let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we stand in all of you and how, despite any circumstance, any situation, any of our sins, any of our failures, that you are faithful. God, that you are faithful to keep your promises. God, may you stir our hearts and our affections as we look at how perfect you are in that, as we look at how powerful you are in that, how wonderful you are in that, how compassionate and merciful you are in that. God, we love you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.